Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From when I was very young, around five years old, I felt like I was limited in what I could do in life as a girl or as a woman. By the time I was about 13, I was starting to feel really depressed. I started self-harming. I started developing an eating disorder. I was introduced to a belief system. If you don't fit in, that's a sign that you're trans. If you don't like your body, then that's a sign that you're trans. And if you transition, all of these problems will be fixed. When I was 22, I started injecting testosterone into my body so that I could medically transition from female to male. Pretty much as soon as I turned 18, I made an appointment. I went to Planned Parenthood. One appointment took about an hour. I called Planned Parenthood. We had about a 30-minute phone conversation, and then I was prescribed testosterone over the phone. I was saying stuff like, oh, I think that I'm going to be so much happier after I transition. Like, I'm really depressed now, and, I, and I'm suicidal, but everything's going to be so much better after I transition. I have to say there was a small, like, underlying anxiety, like, beneath the excitement that was like a fear that I might be doing something wrong. My life just became like a total disaster. And then right after the surgery, I had been hit with these like awful feelings of having made like a huge mistake. like undeniable, just like, oh no, like, what have I done? You know, I was like looking down at my body and seeing like this, like these like weeping gashes on my chest and just having like the most awful feeling. Every year we don't stop this. How many hundreds or thousands of young girls like me, like some of you, how many of them are going to weep at the chance to have their newly lumpy chest flattened out again by mastectomies before they stop being sore? I was thinking about that and realizing, like, I don't really feel better. It just finally hit me that, like, oh my god, like, this has all been a mistake. Everything. I also don't really feel like a man. I just feel like a woman who has had her breasts cut off. It wasn't enough for me to just, like, detransition and get on with my life. I really wanted to understand what went on, what happened to me, and I wanted to understand what was going on in the world. We do our girls a disservice when we lie to them and tell them they don't have to be women. We tell them they can be anything they want to be, but we have forgotten to tell them to love being who they are. I wanted people to know that there is life after detransition, even if you've made serious physical changes. Woman, women, mother, mum, girls, girls, daughter. To those people, the peddlers of transgender ideology, these are not your words to give away. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me on your show. My honor and my pleasure. 
Jay Lawhall. Um, Jay Mama Law. Jay Mama Law. So you've changed the name of the film that you've made. So could could you give me? Could you give us the uh, the name of the film? So the D Transition Diaries. Okay. And the tagline is Saving Our Sisters. Okay. Yeah. Because you're going to make the Saving Our Brothers movie. Uh, I'm working on it. The Bros are kind of uh, a different story. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, maybe you can enlighten me. Uh, it's th- well. There's a lot of different vectors, of course. Uh, the cohort that you're studying in your film did you add a fourth person in your film there's Kat Kattison uh, Helena Kirshner and Grace Lindsay Grace okay yeah. and I tried to pin another one down but it just didn't didn't happen and they are all roughly the same age and have yeah. roughly a similar trajectory into trans identification yes Yes, it was, you know, kind of some of them had a little early trauma. All of them had, you know, awkwardness about their bodies. Mm-hmm. A couple of them spent way too much time on the Internet, Tumblr, you know, the influence of all that. Um, you know, a lot of them just, you know, once they were told and thought this is what they wanted, everybody just happily affirmed, gave them all kinds of treatments and therapies over the phone. <laughs> you know, the usual <laughs> Mm-hmm. usual medical and, negligence and recklessness. So between this film and a previous film, a previous film that you did was about surrogacy. No, before that was transmission. What's the rush to reassign gender? Yeah. That was a year ago. Yeah. <clears throat> so Detransition Diaries is my ninth film. Oh, okay. But before the rush to transition... Or transmission, the rest two transmission. There was egg donation, sperm donation, surrogacy, yeah. all in that kind of space. Yeah. Two on egg donation, two on surrogacy, and one on what's called the donor conceived kids. Kids that find out through all different sorts of ways that they're here on this planet because of donor sperm, yeah. often anonymous. Yeah. Yeah. Right about the time that the Roe v. Wade overturning or the Dobbs overturning of the Supreme Court case broke, and um, that was right at the beginning of summer, and Twitter promised a, uh, a reboot of 2020 with, we're going to overthrow the government now. That didn't come to light for one reason or another, but right about the same time, this photo surfaced of this gay couple these two gay men with this woman, this pregnant woman kind of out of focus behind them. And she was dressed in red. And it was just a very startling contrast between these two kind of cultures while the pro abortion or the pro choice side was um, up in arms and wearing these red dresses with these cowls, the surrogacy picture surface that was this woman basically chained. Yeah. This handmaiden. Like, yeah, yeah I posted that meme everywhere and put the little bonnet on her and put all the little, you know, blessed bee, fruit of the womb. <laughs> I got in all kinds of trouble over that. But yeah, that, you know, I went, I went kind of crazy when Dave Rubin and his husband, Dave, announced that they each have hired their own surrogates, but the same egg donor, but their own sperm so that they can have children. And, you know, we had a lot of the social conservatives, you know, congratulating them. And I can name names or I cannot name names, depending on how 
much trouble I want to cause myself. Yeah. But, but yeah. is there a through line to your work then? I mean, we have discussed before that it's kind of around medical ethics, but mm-hmm. from surrogacy or being a surrogate womb for hire to detransition, are there parallels or the ROGD specifically? Yeah. I mean, body? there's parallels in that um, a lot of the, the, the kids you know, when they're going to be put on a, the, the super highway of gender affirmation, you know, are offered fertility preservation because you you might want to save your eggs and your sperm for later when you've destroyed your fertility and you want to go. And then you become a, really a patient for life because then you'll need to access fertility medicine in order to conceive. Um, you know, Lupron is a drug that people go crazy about because kids are put on that. Egg donors are put on Lupron. You know, so so what does it do for the egg donor? The Lupron? so with with the donor. So what Lupron does, right? We hear people talk about medical castration and um, Lupron. What it actually does is it kind of puts the ovaries to sleep. You know, it puts the testicle, the the sperm producers to sleep. It you know it minimizes a male sex drive because it puts everything. It blocks everything. You know, and what drives a lot of that you know, is, is, you know, the hormones. So they block it right in the egg donor. They're trying to synchronize her menstrual cycle with the woman or the couple who like the Dave Rubin couple that bought the eggs. Cause they're trying to synchronize getting the eggs out of the body, making the embryos and timing them to go in whoever's uterus they're going to go into. And that requires control, medical control, because two women menstruate at different times of the month. And if you've got one person providing eggs and one person's going to be the receiver of the eggs, you want to time those so that it's her, the womb is ready when the eggs and the embryos are ready. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's just a timing control thing. Same with children. We want to time or control or untime puberty. We want to put, we want the prisoner and male and the male prisoner, you know, to not have a sex drive or to have very little sex drive so that he can't get an erection and he, he, he is kind of ambivalent. If a naked woman walks in front of him, he kind of goes, yeah, you look cold <laughs> instead of you look hot. That this makes sense? Is, yeah, this might be a leap. Um, so I'm just going to test the waters with this. But if we are more and more um, concerned with controlling um, the reproductive health of each other um, for various reasons to solve various problems or to... Um, provide various solutions uh, for fertility, let's say, or for puberty. Um, What's to say that we're not going to take that same attitude to climate change and try to mess around with Mother Nature's fertility on a broad scale? I mean, do you see that the same attitude kind of I'm not not a climate change change expert. So, I mean, I guess if I just think broad picture we always have to think about unintended consequences, right? So if we're going to control mother nature, I kind of want to say, well, mother nature always bats last, hmm. you know, and sits on the throne of ha ha ha, you arrogant, prideful people who thought you could control mother nature. Um, so I think it's hubris or just naivete or ignorance to just think we can mess with things like this and that there won't be, down the road, things that we kind of went, oh, we didn't think about that. You know, we have a million frozen embryos in the United States because we weren't thinking way back when, when we were just helping people who couldn't have babies have babies. You know, we weren't thinking 
And now we have this huge debate, which will probably get really tangled up with the Dobbs decision, because is the frozen human embryo something we have to be pro-life worried about? Or can we just chuck it in the bin if the parents decide they don't want any more children and they don't come back to get those frozen embryos? Or can we give them to the scientific researcher who wants to do research, like in the whole embryonic stem cell debate way back when, where did embryonic stem cells come from embryos? So I think the climate thing, it's just, you know, we can't, we always try to think we're smarter than nature. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of evolutionary biologists that are not fans of assisted reproductive technology because in their mind, and I've tried to get Colin Wright to comment on this and he's, you know, it's not his, his area. And I get that we all have our specialties. Um, but, you know, they would, the evolutionary biologists who are in this space would be the ones who would say things like, Mother Nature doesn't want this person or this couple to procreate or reproduce. And this is nature's way of saying. And so what we're seeing now in children born of assisted reproduction is that because we've been doing it long enough, we have larger sample sizes and these children have gotten older. We're seeing in the data that they have higher risks of certain types of cancer. They have higher rates of being obese. I mean, I look back at Dolly the sheep that was the first cloned sheep. Dolly the sheep got very, very sick and very obese. She was just this fat old sheep. (laughs) You know, but those are the things that we think, oh, well, we're just helping this person have a baby. Isn't this great? And then down the road, we go, oh, you know. So uh, I I just have to tug this open. There's one million embryos. What, What? classifies as an embryo like like a it, immediately um, so you take fertilized an egg, egg? Okay. take an egg and you fertilize it with sperm and once it's fertilized people will say fertilize embryo and fertilize egg and like cringe i go hit the tip jar you cannot because once the egg is fertilized it's not a fertilized egg it's an embryo or you know if you want to get down into the nitty-gritty of the whole development you know blastocyte zygote embryo you know <laughs> fetus um, but yeah, so an embryo is an egg that has been fertilized by a sperm. And it's frozen. So it, it's a multicellular organism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or is it a single cell? Still- early on. So it's usually at the four, four cell, maybe eight cell stage. Wow. You know, when they freeze them. Okay. And sometimes before they freeze them, they'll test them, right? Because they want to, if the couple wants a girl or a boy or not a Down syndrome baby or, you know, so they do what's called pre- pre-implantation genetic testing, not prenatal because prenatal, you know, is when they go in when you're pregnant and do like amniocentesis and test the baby, but pre-implantation genetic testing diagnosis, it can be often done before they, and then they go, oh, it's good. It's what we want put in the freezer because we don't need 60 of them right now. We'll put them in the freezer. And how do they take a sample of DNA with a, from a four cells or a clump of cells? Like they just go in and take one. They just take a sample. So that's another unknown. You know, what does it do in the early stages of human development to take something that's, in my mind, is kind of necessary and important? It's like a quarter or an eighth of the entire. But when we get back to the studies that are coming out of children that are born. And we're seeing problems. We have to go, is it something to do with the technique? Or, and or, is it something to do with a couple that otherwise wouldn't have been able to reproduce in nature because of some 
defect in their own fertility that we bypass. We found a workaround around. Can you work around a workaround? <laughs> well, I mean, it gets on a windy path. That's for sure. Yeah. And so I see similars in the whole, especially in children and young adults, you know, this doing things that we think are helping not only, and, and, and many of us know that we are harming, you know, we, we know that there's going to be ill health, you know, casualties sooner versus later. Um, but then there's also this, the gross ignorance of what seems to be, you know, the medical establishment, you know, American Academy of Pediatrics, Pediatric Endocrine Society, those kinds of groups that ought to know better, that are just thinking that they are helping these young people that have this gender dysphoria. Mm-hmm. And so in your own dives into this topic, where have you found um, the fountainhead or where does it begin for you with regard to the medical establishment going in this direction and going so hard? Yeah, I'm asked that question a lot because I did work in clinical nursing for 20 years. So I was on the inside for a long time. And I think about when my, you know, because I'm quite a bit older than you, I think of the olden days when I was a brand new young nurse. And, you know, we still had high regard for physicians, which got us into trouble. So we had a big swing back, you know, it used to be doctor knows best. You didn't question, you just do whatever the doctor tells you. Um you know, there was just a lot of paternalism in medicine where we just tell people what to do. We don't listen to them. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have any need for a bedside manner. Um, you know, there, I think there still is that sort of God complex in medicine. You know, we come in to save the day. Here we come to, you know, and we do, we save lives. So there's some of that's legitimate. Hmm. But I saw, I think probably the biggest shift, um, two things is they stopped requiring medical ethics in medical school. school. Most of the time, if medical programs, um, school programs have medical ethics classes, it's, um, it's an elective, mm-hmm. which part of me says today is probably okay because if you have a medical ethics teacher who is woke. <laughs> Do we really want them teaching medical ethics versus somebody who really understands medical ethics? Um, the other shift is we move from, you know, medicine being really uh, a profession to service providing industry. You know, when I left nursing, we had clients and customers and we were service providers, healthcare providers versus patients, doctors, nurses, you know, healthcare professionals. So we moved to a service away from just do whatever your doctor says to doctor does whatever I tell him to do. And that coincides with the doctor following the experts. So the doctor is no longer an authority. The The authority is outsourced to the bureaucracy, the so-called experts, and to the patient, you think? Is the doctor just kind of this vector of... Yeah, I think that's the third leg on the stool. Like when I was in graduate school, getting my master's in bioethics, you know, it used to be medical ethics, and then it became bioethics. So it was ethics by committee. You know, so when I was a nurse, because I did pediatrics, and we often would have ethics consults on difficult cases that were, you know, just messy for various reasons, or a really ill child, you know, the committee would be everything from the hospital administrators, because these are financial decisions, right? Do we let this person stay on a ventilator for six months? Who's going to pay for it? It's a hospital. You know, we had lawyers that were now part of the ethics consult. 
as well as doctors and nurses and therapists and counselors and members of the, the patient's family or the patient themselves that they could participate. Um, so it moved from a model of ethics, mostly driven by the, the doctor would disorder something, you know, we would, this is what we're going to do or not do, to ethics by committee, which gets back to the point of who do you really trust when ethics is now given to a committee where the committee might not share your values. We don't have a shared sense of values anymore of what's good, virtuous and lovely and right and honorable. And, and accountability is also distributed to, into the institution, right? Basically going from suing the doctor to suing the organization, right? If something I would is think in, Sure, in the, in the clinical setting, I mean, certainly there's a lot of patients that are outpatient that are, are not in a hospital that are just being treated at home and within you know, their personal physician you know, network. But yeah, certainly in, in, a, in, and more so, you know, for me where I work, cause I most, I almost solely worked in, in big university teaching hospitals. Um, but that was clearly the case. And okay. Another wide question. Yeah. Can the way in which gender, um, g- gender care, let's say as neutral as possible, gender care, uh, has, kind of just captured so much of the institution and has become, uh, they've, they've leaned into it so hard. Can that show us something about the institutional degeneracy of uh, the United States medical uh, field? It could, could it be the case that gender, whatever's happening in the realm of gender is showing how um, weak the structure is to making the right decision, to changing the minds to 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 not uh, going in one direction or another yeah i mean i'm not sure if i'm 100 percent understanding what you're asking me mm. um but but to be fair we've seen this creep into sort of all areas of, of institutional life i mean it's in the ac- the academic institution so the academy has been captured Um, certainly big business. My husband works for a big company and I'm just outraged that they've invited a trans woman to speak at a big event, you know, international women's day. Um, so it's certainly creeped into, um, you know, business. Mm -hmm. Um, it's in the arts, it's in the media, it's being taught in law schools. You know, there's a whole field now of reproductive justice law, which has nothing to do with justice. It has to do with exploiting women for their reproductive bodies, in my mind. So, you know, I don't want but but I also want to hold medicine to a different account because they are the gatekeepers for our health. Right. They are the gatekeepers for who lives, who dies, what kind of treatment we get, you know, so, so they have, you know, I do think, and I I got into a little discussion, sort of a a disagreement the other night, and this is not um, my own analogy and you could plug, you know, here's a thought experiment. Imagine you're on an airplane and you're just digging this movie and you're loving it and you're so excited and you're looking at your watch because the plane's about to land and you're hoping you get to finish the movie before they land the plane and you don't get to see the end of the movie. And the flight attendant gets on the phone and the overhead and says, hey, we've got an accountant who's got to give a big presentation and they're having trouble with their Excel spreadsheet. Is there anybody on the plane that could help them? And you're the accountant and you're like, no, I'm finishing my movie. (laughs) You know, that guy could just... You know, 
On the other hand, if they get on the thing and they say, hey, we've got somebody who looks like they're having a heart attack. Is there anybody on the plane that has any expertise that could like come to their rescue? You would you would not sit in your chair and finish your movie. You know, whether you're a nurse or a doctor or a fireman or a paramedic, you, you that you would you would feel a sense of duty and obligation. So in, in that analogy, I hold medicine or the whole medical profession, nurses to mm-hmm. clinical therapists, you know, to a different account mm-hmm. than I would hold, you know, IBM or Target. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the the. I guess the, the real life consequences and ergo the, the power and therefore the responsibility of the medical profession is on a different level than these other things. But like you intimated or, or suggested, the it might flow from the academy. Uh, it might be the academy that's pushing it into all these other realms, right? Because the, the academy is the ultimate one who stamps everybody's certificate. Um, yeah. And again, they're so far removed from where the rubber meets the road. And that's why your work what you're doing is so important because you're trying to establish some sort of skin in the game or or showing the outcomes of this institutional abstract ideas and then all these different bureaucracies and all this stuff coming down and impacting young women, impacting young men. I'm trying, double B, I'm trying. Yeah. What is the likelihood that this method, the method that you're doing with your documentaries and that I've done with my interviews has an impact? Can we like, what do you imagine the impact that our product can have eventually? Yeah. Um, And I, you know, these are things that are still sort of nebulous and hard to get, you know, tangibles on, but what, I, there's many times that I care. I don't really care what the law says because people can still do whatever they want. You know, if I don't want to be a surrogate and I don't want to sell my eggs because I've learned that this is dangerous and harmful to me. And, and even though the law says I can do it, I'm not going to do it. I can smoke, but I'm not going to smoke. So part of it is just this a mass educational Part of it's to be able to go to your doctor and be much more informed. Hey, I watched this movie last week and you're telling me that my child has gender dysphoria and you're suggesting X, Y, and Z. I don't think we're going to do that, doctor. I think we're just going to hit pump the brakes. We're going to, you know, get Johnny or little Susie some counseling or some therapy, or we're just going to let her or him play with dolls and trucks, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know? And so part of it's just that. You know, and let the lawmakers just do crazy things and stupid things. But part of it's what we're seeing now just being unfolding, you know, with Vanderbilt just like yesterday, you know, all their, um, you know, Matt Walsh has uncovered, you know, all kinds of gems of a, you know, a public meeting forum where they're just saying all this trends and gobbledygook. And, you know, if you're conservative or you're religious or you're, if you're this or that, you know, you, you know, you need to just you know, go to hell. <laughs> you know? These are my words. Um, you know, we've seen what's, you know, everybody being um, sort of um, brought up to speed with the new release of the WPATH guidelines and what the new. So, so part of it, and, and, you know, you've been very influential in, in educating me and I've been sort of an interloper on your site and watching and learning from what you've done. So, and we're all doing that, you know, there's people that are just silently watching and, and learning, 
Um, You know, I had somebody today that just reached out to me because our new film is on Vimeo. And she said, I want to give a gift to 10 people of your new film. How can Mm. I do that? I had a major university yesterday reach out to me. The acquisition librarian said, we would like to buy university library rights to your film so we can put it in our catalog for our students to watch and our teachers to use in classes. I'm like, right on. You know, these are the kind of things that, you know, I can't, you know, if somebody quoted me on, how do you know you're making a difference? I kind of go, well, I, I am. I meet women all the time that go, when I was in college, I watched exploitation and I had the forms on my bed. I was about ready to become an egg donor. And I went, whoa, you know, now that's, those are all, everybody would say, oh, that's this anecdotal. That's mm-hmm. this narrative. Those are just stories. It's all going to come together yeah. and yeah. one big, happy you know? Well, the, I know it's a cliche by design, but the plural of anecdote is data. So eventually you get yeah. your sample size, eventually you get your impact. And I did publish, along with my colleagues, our surrogacy data, which is now in peer-reviewed journal, where we took 96 gestational surrogates in America through our IRB, interna- inter- internal review board. So it means it met all the ethics smell tests to be a legitimate study that we could go take people through. And you know what we found? High risk pregnancies, high rates of cesarean section, much higher rates in postpartum depression in the surrogate mother than when she gave birth to her own children. You know, so, so we need both. You know, mm-hmm. as far as, you know, yeah. the, the ammo. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, a- anecdotes add up and add up and add up. I mean, mm-hmm. why did we finally do the research on smoking? I think it was, I'd have to go back and count again. I think it was three or four Marlboro men that did the Marlboro men commercials and died of lung cancer. <laughs> you know, they just find a new rugged looking guy and put him in that suede coat and smoke the Marlboros. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because those were anecdotal evidences that, you know, physicians were seeing, why are all these people that smoke coming in with these lung, lung problems? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There keeps on popping up on my Twitter feed. Um, interesting uh data around myocarditis myocarditis yeah myocarditis the sudden explosion of it and how the data is not really being discussed and it's not being entered but it's just anecdotal from my point of view i don't have the power or like the backing it relates to the covid the vaccination the vaccine it just seems Uh like there's this correlation this great uptick and stuff and uh also just with regard to the lockdowns and the impacts that the lockdowns have had on children specifically on rates of depression on cancer rates because of not being checked up one wonders if the institution um if it's in the institution's favor to confront that because those are institutional decisions right yeah and and that gets back to your earlier point about you know um adjusting mother nature you you know we had no idea what the unintended consequences would be on such a large-scale global lockdown you know there's one thing if i'm just nasty to the people in my house and they they grow up and become nasty people because they were raised by a nasty person Mm -hmm. it is another thing when you do things to people on a mass massive scale you can't even begin to um, calculate the the enormity or the, you know, I, I live in California, the, the Geiger counter, the earthquake measurement. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think, the, I think the world is going to shake 
when we look at some of the aftermath of what we're doing with the massive lockdowns, with the transing of children, with the, you know, the wild west of fertility medicine, mm-hmm. you know, mother nature is going to, is going to smack us down. Hmm. Yeah. When, I love mother nature. She's a, she's a scrappy fighter like uh, me. <laughs> when was your uh, first love affair with her? Like, did you do a lot with, of hiking? Mother nature? 12 or Yeah. My first love affair with Mother Nature. Yeah, when did you uh, discover her beneficent and maleficent I, powers? I, I think mostly in just in the last two, two decades of the work I've been doing, when mm-hmm. I see so much of the hubris, um, especially in science, you know, that we're going to solve all these things. I mean, I think it was wasn't it Nixon that was going to fight the war war on cancer. Hmm. And we're still we're still fighting the war on cancer. <laughs> But, you know, that was that wasn't, you know, and then we were going to fight the war on hunger and the war on poverty. We're always fighting these wars, but we never seem to win them. We still have hungry people and poor people and people dying of cancer. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's again, Mother Nature hmm. is saying, no, I'm, I'm going to decide when these wars are, are won or hmm. when you all just kind of. I was reading an article earlier today. Um, I can't remember the author's name, but he was talking about the um, liberal society has basically been eroded. And the way that it's been eroded is that we're always in a state of emergency, right? So a liberal government allows for maximum freedom and minimal government. But in cases of emergency, then those that liberalism is set aside in order for something to be done, like whether it's a war or a... Uh, national emergency on some level. And you see that the rhetoric of war has just escalated. We've had war after war after war. And what that's allowed the state to do itself is to maintain an indefinite period of emergency and maintain all these powers over. I think Jay Inslee, my governor, is still uh, has emergency powers uh, for the COVID thing. I don't know if Gavin Newsom. Yes, he does. He yeah, won't so, release them. Yeah. Why would they? Why yeah. would they? Got the keys uh, to the kingdom. I'm not giving them back. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, I think it, you're right. I think it is a state of emergency. It's a state of keeping us afraid. It seem, it's a state of always having a crisis. What's the crisis of today? What's the crisis? Um, and, and on one hand, it does put us constantly always in this panic mode of fighting, fighting. They're going to take away. Or they're going to. Or it also makes us ambivalent. You know, because it's just like, oh yeah, here. What, what's the new? You know. So I, I worry that we just get weary. Hmm. of, you know, this constant state of being angry, agitated, worried, <laughs> afraid, mm-hmm. 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 you know, soon you just kind of go, ah, fuck it. Sorry. Yeah. So in your, that's fine. Uh, do you want me to edit that out? Is that bad? Does that besmirch your reputation? The F word? No, okay. I just know some people might not like that. I'm sorry for those people. I'm sorry, but you know, <laughs> uh, so in, Approaching these really intense issues, detransition, transition, medical transition, surrogacy, um, the, uh, I guess it would be fair to say the violence against women uh, through uh, fertility medicine, or as they call it, reproductive justice. How do you keep from being in a constant state of agitation? Where's your bedrock? Where's your, um, your balance? Um, and, and does that manifest in you being active towards us running toward the problem yeah i mean i think a lot of it is um you know based on my years of working in in nursing i was always a strong patient advocate 
um, working in pediatric nursing, I was even, you know, you're even a more of an advocate you have because you have to deal with, you know, parents who have to be informed and brought up to speed so they can advocate on behalf of their children. You know, I have a strong sense of justice, you know, especially in, in the responsibility that medicine has to, you know, first do no harm. So those are the things that just m- motivate me. I, I can't um, imagine that I would, you, you know, even when I'm the old lady in the nursing home, that I wouldn't be caring about these kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, that and and I do get discouraged, but it's usually pretty rare. And my husband, you know, when you live with people that really know you after a while, he'll just usually say something like, you just need a good night's sleep, you know, and and then I do, I get a good night's sleep and I wake up going, okay, I'm not going to quit because you know? mm-hmm. today I'm not doing this anymore. You can take <laughs> this job and shove it, you know, you know? or I'll say, let's go out for dinner tonight. You know, I'm like, yeah. I don't want to, I'm too tired. No, let's go out today. Oh, I'm so glad you made me go out to dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, I got on my bike this morning. I hadn't been on my bike for two weeks. I was, I just got back from New Zealand the jet lag crushed me and it crushed me coming back from New Zealand and literally we're finishing the ending of the, the new movie when I'm in New Zealand. And, and so I, and I woke up this morning and went, Oh, I got such a busy day and I'm going to be on Benjamin's show, which means I got to do my hair and my makeup. I'm like, no, I need to get on my bike. And by golly, you know, 35 minutes later, I was like, I am so glad I got on my bike. And mm. I feel like I'm so, look at me. I'm so happy. Yeah. Chipper. I'm not going to I'm not so going to quit. Basic self-care keeps you in the fight. Yeah. 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 Good yeah. sleep, good dinner, get some exercise. So in California, did they go through with the law where it's like a sanctuary state for trans youth? Now that they proposed a law. Sitting so, on his desk, okay. the, the big man's desk to be signed has not been yet been signed into law. So minors across the United States, maybe even from other countries, who knows, can come to California and get the gender care that they desire. And California will give them sanction, will protect them from their parents, I suppose, and then hook them up with doctors. Are doctors now required to give gender affirming medicine, which is a euphemism if I ever heard one, um, to are they all is that kind of in law too where all doctors or the state medical yeah um now and i know you had erin friday on your show not too long ago and she's amazing Mm -hmm. i mean what she's been able to do in the state is i've just props to her but my understanding is you know a a child with you know a, a divorced or separated parent could come with a parent a child that has two parents that is in a state that doesn't allow this could come here um, a child could come here and get emancipated you know if they just run away from home and they just show up in california and you know knock on social services door or you know a foster care home or something you know could could become emancipated i don't i do not believe that so for example if, a, if you went to a physician and he did not believe in gender affirmation care. I don't think he will be forced. You know, like I don't have, if I was a reproductive, if I was an OBGYN doctor, for example, and somebody came to me and said, I want to do surrogacy. You know, I, I could say that's, a, I'm a conscientious objector. You know, you'll have to find somebody else. I think doctors can still do that um, in the state of California. So if they are not on the, um, the cheer train for gender affirmation therapy, they could be not be forced to provide those services, but the state would be forced to receive these children and offer them these services. And my understanding is the taxpayers would be on the hook for paying mm. for this. 
I mean, if you're an emancipated youth, you, you know, you don't have money for gender affirmation care. Um, so yeah, it's on his desk and we're all just uh, uh, hmm. hoping that he, I, I was told, and I don't know if this is true. I was told he has like 900 bills on his desk. Um, so I'm hoping it's at the bottom of the pile and that by the time he, he gets, gets to it, people like Aaron Friday and all the parents in the state of California, I understand there's something p- being planned around the, oh, I shouldn't say that. Never mind. I won't say that. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll leave that juicy tidbit for another episode. Yeah. Yeah. And so. have you looked into this, how the state is paying for these gender affirming cares? Because I, I know that the foster system is kind of allowing for it or not discouraging it, let's say. Yeah, I was doing I was doing a poke around the other day because I'm in the Bay Area. So the I think it's called the San Francisco Healthcare Plan, which is Medi-Cal. Um, so if you're a trans person in the city of San Francisco or, you know, and you want affirmation therapies or surgeries, you know, they'll, you know, it's all part of the that, which is a, a state funded, you know, I don't, you know. I don't think they're going to loop, um, you know, Blue Cross, Blue Shield into that and make them have to pay for um, uninsured people. I think it will be through the, you know, the state health care. Hmm. There's quite a few state different health care plans. Um, but from my reading the other day, the San Francisco plan is, you know, one of the most popular and the biggest ones that people in the city use and, mm-hmm. and companies use to provide you know, for indigent people mm-hmm. or, or low income people or uninsured people. And are there any similar um, sorts of state-funded medical interventions that turned out to be needless down the road? I guess what comes to mind, and I don't know too much about it, would be mental health care, lobotomies, electroshock therapy being used by the state to take care of certain problems. But. I'm trying to think of things that are offered like that. I mean, we, you know, we've talked about that, you know, it's certainly unnecessary to offer a young girl double mastectomies um, on healthy breasts. Um, hmm. Nothing, nothing is coming to mind if there is something. Um, I was just reading a, a piece that Joe Bartosh sent me this morning on um, providing treatment for short kids, mm-hmm. you know, so that, you know, have short stature. Mm-hmm. We need to put these kids on growth hormones, which I think is totally unnecessary. Um, but as far as being mandated and required and paid for with taxpayer money, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. yeah. I just wonder if in the case of transition, if there will be reparations down the line, if. Uh, we already do that for the people that were involuntarily sterilized in the state of California. I mean, California was one of the biggest abusers in the early 1900s with, you know, mass involuntary sterilization. And I think we have, um, oh, so we just, what was the uh, $7.5 million reparation fund that, um, sorry, I just had a pop-up. Um, 7.5 million is my understanding that California is doling out to people that are still alive. Obviously, a lot of these people that were involuntarily sterilized have long you know, died and gone away and didn't get their um, their reparations. But I, I said that I was on a Zoom call with some lawmakers in California. I believe Aaron Friday was on that and a couple other people. And I just sort of challenged this young woman who worked, who's a staffer for one of our lawmakers that, you know, we this will be another one of those moments in history 
where we will have to make reparations to people like, you know, they grow up and go, oh, I, I can't have any children and I want children. And I was never told that I wouldn't be able to have children for doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm constantly a patient in need of mental health care. I was never told that, you know, this would, you know, ruin my life and my, my, my mental health. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And what was the uh, populations that were targeted with uh, the involuntary sterilization? You know, it was the usual that we love to target, you know, low income. I mean, I remind reminded of the Buck versus Bell, Oliver Wendell Holmes ruling where he ruled against P- Carrie Buck, who was a low, low income, uneducated woman and said three imbeciles is enough. You know, so we're going to, you know, force you to be sterilized. So you can't have any more children, you know, certainly minorities, disabled people, mm-hmm. Women, women were obviously heavily targeted, targeted because they were the ones that could get pregnant mm-hmm. <laughs> and produce these imbeciles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, they got pregnant with the help of a man, but yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're prisoners, prisoners, se- prisoners. Yeah. For a second, I thought you said sinners, and I wonder <laughs> who does California consider a sinner nowadays. No, I thought you said senators. They're sinners, <laughs> sinners, and senators. <laughs> I think they're when I was a little girl before we moved to California. My, I'm a southerner. My grandmothers are southerners. My grandmothers used to call that Sin City. That's Sin City out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Grandma, I'm moving to Sin City. Here I am. <laughs> so your film, um, what's the essence of it? I, I watch it. Beautiful film. I, I know these uh, young women. Uh, yes. Very evocative. Uh, you feel very close to them after this time. Um, what was the motivation and how did you end up artistically constructing it? Yeah. Well, the motivation was the transmission film. What's the rush? And when we released that film, and again, we released it during COVID. So we couldn't do any live theater screenings like we did Monday night. We had a live theater screening, but um you know, you, you get a lot of feedback and, and vibe back from people that have watched it, even though it went straight online for viewing. And, you know, two things was people really connected with the parents in transmission. You know, their hearts ached for these parents that, you know, knew their kids better than anybody else. And here they were facing this child saying, I'm, I'm really not that anymore. I'm this. And the lack of support they got, whether it was from teachers or from medical professionals or from even within their own family, you know, that they just felt isolated and, you know, her, this burden on their heart for their, their child. And the second thing was audiences really connected with the voices of the detransitioners. Cause we included D, two detransers in that film, Hachi, who have you had Hachi on your show? No. And the older, you know who, who, do you know who Hachi is? I don't know. Uh, no, the okay. older person in that film? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. So he's a, a man who lived as a, presented as a woman for a long time. Um, and then another woman who was, a, you know, to male transitioner. And, but the audience is really connected with those firsthand accounts because I don't think you hear that. I mean, it's, that's the, the story that's silenced in the media, especially the mainstream media. You know, they don't want to tell the, the unhappy stories. It's like all the hookers are happy hookers. You know, there's no, there's no sex workers that are not happy with being sex workers, and and so we quickly just said let's let's make this a shorter film. It's about 42 minutes runtime, um, and let's just do a deep dive into the voices of the detransitioners. And we also what ha- saw what happened on 60 Minutes when Leslie Stahl dared 
to include the voices of the detransition. How dare you? We thought we're on to something here. And then it was it was a stylistic decision just to do a deep dive into women. Um, part of that's because we do a lot of work in vulnerable women that have been exploited, whether it be through egg surrogacy, those that kind of space. Part of it's because of just sort of the whole rapid onset social contagion that seems to be really affecting women. You know, when you look at the how many mastectomies are being performed in young people, you know, that's just so we we thought, you know, you can't do everything in a film. There, you know, our film is not the there's a couple more films I'm, I hear are coming out soon and, and a little after, you know, so there will be more films. But we just said we're just going to make a film and tell, you know, the story of these women. Mm -hmm. And then we did include Kelly J. Keene and Libby Emmons and Natasha Chart because we'd hosted an event in New York City around the Commission on the Status of Women, which is a big annual global event at the UN. Mm. Um, and that event was called um, How Gender Equality, in quotes, Cheats Women and Girls. And on that panel, I spoke as well as Beth Steltzer, who's with Save Women's Sports. But we were able to pick some of the content from that event just to sort of embellish and expand on um, the voices of Kat and Grace and Helena. Mm -hmm. And how's the response been so time? It was released like five days ago, around the 17th? No, just ago? Monday. Oh, okay. Two days ago. Okay. Yeah. So Monday night was the premiere at the local theater. We had, we rented a local theater. Um, people were surprised. We, how did you get a theater to rent your, and let you show that movie there? I'm like, well, I just asked and gave them money. <laughs> um, so that was really fun. And, you know, Erin Friday was in the audience. So she um, participated in the discussion after the film. And then Kat was there. And so she participated in the discussion after the film. And, and we had no protesters. Um, so we didn't release the venue address until the morning of the event. We just told people the city so that it could at least like sort of know their drive time. How long does it take me to get to that city? And we expected to have protesters, but we didn't. And we even had some media come with cameras and, you know, interviews. And that was kind of fun. And the audience overwhelmingly just loved the film. I mean, a lot of people cry. My husband watched it and he cried. And I kept looking at him going, are you crying? You're crying, you're crying. <laughs> you know, because it is sad. <laughs> but, you know, the... Um, it's also hopeful. And I think because you gave me an early blurb, I think you sort of said something about the sadness or the the harms, but also the hopefulness, you know, so it does, it leaves audience with this is, this was sad what happened. This is wrong what happened, but I'm glad that these women have survived, mm -hmm. you know, that they've made it through this storm um, and they've come out on the other side. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that that will be a hopeful message for other people that, especially young people that are in this space, either gender questioning, gender confused, have friends, you know, um, I hope it will help them to listen to their, basically their contemporaries. I mean, I can talk to people all day long, but they're like, well, you're like my mom. My mom says that too. <laughs> okay, boomer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. No, so it's a very accessible film and I'm, I'm not a teenage girl, so I don't know that market, but I can't, uh, I can see them being able to I identify as a teenage girl. Do you? Yeah. Is that your identity? No, <laughs> that's a troublesome identity. Does your, is your husband yeah. forced to go along with that? Yeah. Do no. your so uh, speaking business wise, what is the, 
what do you do now that it's done and it's out there? I guess you do these pressers like we're doing right now, but um, what what is your concentration now with the film? And then with your company as a whole, where do you think you're going to be guided next? Or do you have an inkling of what's next? Yeah, well, r right now, I mean, it takes... It took us seven months to make this film, which is a whirlwind. I mean, that is a very short from when we did the first interview to when we released it Monday night as seven months. Mm. So I, I like it's kind of like when I'm pregnant and I have a baby and it takes me nine months to get out of shape. I always give myself nine months to get back into shape. <laughs> so I, it took me seven months and my team. I still it wasn't just me, you know, to make this film. So I like to I like to put all my energy into it for seven months ish. You know, so we're already scheduling other theater screenings. Okay. We've already been approached by other people that want to, you know, bring the film, rent a movie house and do a, a screening. And depending on where they are geographically, find maybe local detransition people, you know, to participate in some kind of a talk back. So we'll spend a lot of energy on that. We're going to spend a lot of energy getting more and more university libraries to buy this film. Like we just just landed in our lap yesterday and we went, Oh, the libraries are on to us. Mm. You know, this would be a great thing way for us to spend some energy into maybe some advertisement, buying some lists to acquisition libraries, you know, in, in, in universities. Um, and yeah, so just pushing it, we, you know, I've got lots of media interviews scheduling. I every, like this morning, I think four different media people asked for a, a private link so they could watch it, you know, mm. write a review, whatever. Um, and yeah, so we'll just spend a lot. Now down the road, I don't see us getting out of the filmmaking space. One, because we just love it. Um, it's fun. It's work. It's hard work, but it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's brain power, but it's the creative. So I love the mix. It's not just thinking like, you know, when you're doing research and data and writing. And we did sign a book deal. So we've already in contract to turn Detransition Diaries into a book. Oh, wow. And we have to deliver a manuscript like a week, two weeks before Christmas. Oh. So Callie Fell, who co-produced and co-wrote the script with me, she and I will be busy writing a script, I mean, a book. And of course, that will be much bigger because it's not a 40-minute film, it's a book. So it's going to have more chapters. How did we get here? What's the history? You know, where did medicine go wrong? Um, as well as including the stories. And we'll add a few more stories that we weren't able to add on camera. So we're reaching out to a couple of detransition women right now to see if they would give permission for us to include their stories in the book. And um, if you've ever written a book before, it's a lot of work. So I told Callie yesterday, we should have a goal to write 5,000 words a week, 5,000 words a week, 5,000 words a week. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and we have the, the churn, you know, write it, read it, edit, write it, read it, edit. You know, yeah. kind of. That's the only way to get a book done is to write the book. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And you have to, to me, I have to, it works for me. I have to give myself a carrot or a goal. You know, you know, I will say to myself when I'm at my desk, I can't go to the kitchen and get a snack until I write 500 words. I really want a snack. I just made cookies. I want a cookie. Nope. I got to write 500 words. Then I go get my cookie. <laughs> <laughs> So, and so between the writing of the book and the next seven months, you expect to be doing a tour with this across America, Canada, where, where do you expect to be going? You know, we expect to be going where we're invited because we're, we can't just show up. We just can't show up and go, we're here, y'all come. Mm -hmm. You know, we need boots on the ground. We need people on, on the ground, no people, you know, so we're already in discussion with people at Princeton University 
to show the, the film there, which would be wonderful, but they're, they're attached, they're there. So they, they know the movie house, they can go into contract, they can you know, rally people to come and buy tickets and come and watch the movie. Mm-hmm. So um, we just, we don't, we're so small and we don't have the manpower to just start you know, doing all that, um, yeah. but we just yeah. make ourselves available. Um, and whether it takes on an, you know, when I look at the Vimeo data and I'm a, a data chunky, I think it's already sold into 12 countries Mm-hmm. online so you know because it's digital so anybody can buy it so we've, we've sold into south korea you know mm-hmm. of course new zealand because i was just in new zealand and promoting the film we've you know we've sold into france and united kingdom and canada and germany and you know on and on and on mm-hmm. so um and then as you know some people luckily we haven't because we are monetizing this film we're asking people to pay 5.99 on vimeo when we released transmission it went straight for free viewing on um on our YouTube channel, but that was because we had a very generous donor and that was the donor's request mm-hmm. was to not have any barriers and just, you know, so we were fully funded, just made the film and just made it available. That was not the case for this film. And we kind of had to bootstrap it, strap it along the way. Uh, like the local ROGD parent group out here was very helpful in raising the funds to bring Helena um, to, to do that whole interview and pay the cost of that. Um, so we'll probably release it onto YouTube after we recover some of our mm-hmm. our, our our budget um mm-hmm. so i don't want people to think we're just trying to get rich on this you know we're just trying to keep the boat afloat <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah no um the d-trans uh, grift it it's gonna it's, it's gonna make somebody a lot of money eventually but yeah not you not, yeah. not yet um yeah. do, do you have any contracts with the daily wire oh yeah, don't don't answer that question coming up. Uh, I guess you and Matt Walsh. Do you guys? Uh, are you? Do you I can't th- get consider- him to answer my calls. Oh, okay. So he's not I even try, a competitor. I knock on the like, doors all the time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's so many people that don't take my calls, Benjamin. <laughs> <laughs> I always take your call. Well, your DMs, <laughs> to be specific. So um, if somebody wants to get in contact with you, it, does the uh, film have its own website right now, or is it just on Vimeo? It's, we do have on our, our cbc-network.org, we have a, a whole drop down on the film. You know, the, it has the press release. It has all the glowing endorsements from people like you. Mm-hmm. Um, it has the links to how to, how to see it on, on Vimeo. Um, and then what was the other question you asked me? Uh, oh, well, how oh, would people, me yeah. I'm on Twitter. Okay. I'm just yeah. at Jennifer Lal. Okay. And if and so it is possible for people to gift viewings to other people. You have that you're you're setting the, up that infrastructure. Yeah, because Vimeo allows you to create a bunch of just private codes mm-hmm. and links. And so, like the person this morning that wanted ten, we just created ten codes. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, she just bought the ten codes, and then she'll just be responsible for giving them to whoever she wants. We mm-hmm. that's how we re- reach out to the media. You know, then they say, I want to, you know private access code we just send them a vimeo link that is tied to a a unique code yeah yeah Um, so people can we already have um people in italy that want to translate the film oh well there we go two days you know what they do is they just we just send we send them the word document script and then they translate it into italian and then you can reload and upload the um, subtitles Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so uh to put the word out you have a film, so it'll be linked in the description, but you're also looking for translators, uh, vin- people who want to host you for a showing. Oh, sure. Um, so, and, and viewers, and just to get the word out. Again, it is a beautiful film, and I, I 
don't know Kat, but I know Helena and Grace pretty well. And you really give them a chance to just be themselves and, and speak to yeah. their experience. It's not I really love them all. People ask me all the time in the making of the film, do you have a favorite? I'm like, I just love them all. <laughs> every time it's not a movie that I've gotten tired of. When you make movies at one point, you get sick of watching it again and again and again, when the re- editor keeps sending you another version, you're like, fast forward, fast forward. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just sit there and go, I just love these women to death. Just hmm. love them to death. Hmm. 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 Yeah. Well, Jennifer, you you're a busy, busy woman. You, you're constantly creating content, which is just very admirable um, from my point you of view. You do that all day long. That's your, you That's know, channels, content creator. Yeah, we just got to churn. We just got to be a part of the churn. Yeah. So it's great to be able to be on the same side um, as you on this particular issue, but also to learn from you and to actually constellate this one issue. I'm really more and more concerned as I just develop as somebody who's constantly immersed in politics about the systemic issue or the institutional issue. And you're able to, to tie those things together. And I think that that is something that also needs to, to always be kind of discussed, even if it's not the center of any given issue is that this is being done, this transition thing, surrogacy thing, this is being done by a society. It's part of it's part of a cultural thing. It's got a legal framework. It's got a medical framework, and it's got an ethical aspect to it that that's kind of overlooked. And yeah. uh, reawakening the ethics of the institution is one way that we might be uh, able to get out of certain messes that we've gotten into. Yeah. Well. Thank you. I'm just, like I said, I'm a huge admirer of your work and I've learned a lot from what you've done. So we're all in this together, doing our part. And uh, so you, you uh, are going to do another bike ride later on today or are you just going to eat cookies and write? What's, what's on your plate now? I don't know. I think maybe I'll take a nap. Oh, New Zealand jet lag. (laughs) Do do you ever get over it or is it just chronic now? Like going off to Vietnam? I I, I felt today, I felt like I'm finally over it. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think I I burnt, I bent that corner, turned that corner, bent that curve. Turned the corner. Beautiful country though. I'd never been before. Beautiful country, wonderful people. I zip lined in a rainforest. Whoa. So not me. Wait, with like sloths? What? What's the uh, national? Uh, no, they have kiwis. They have these little kind of birds, right? Like little funky oh, yes. creatures. So in many there. birds. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the kiwis on the endangered species list. So we didn't see any of them in the the rainforest. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Well, cool. well, thank you so much, Jennifer. I'll end Thanks the for having me. My pleasure. <laughs>